The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sportbox. We are live in London and Brussels, where NATO leaders are gathering as we mark one month since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here are your headlines. U.S. President Joe Biden arrives for a series of leaders' summits as NATO promises a major reinforcement of its eastern flank. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the war will have a significant impact on security issues. This invasion, this brutal war in Ukraine, would have long-term consequences for our security. It's a new normal for our security, and NATO has to respond to that new reality. Russian President Vladimir Putin says payment for gas supplies must now be made in rubles, breaching delivery contracts as Western sanctions start to bite. I have decided to implement a set of measures to switch over payments as soon as possible. Let's start with our natural gas, to switch over payments for our natural gas supply to the so-called unfriendly countries into Russian rubles. Well, the cost of the war in Ukraine will wipe out 15 years of economic growth in Russia. As the IIF says, international sanctions, collapsing imports and a brain drain will devastate the Russian economy. Renault halts operations in Russia and revises down its margin outlook after the French carmaker is called out by the Ukrainian government for continuing to, quote, finance the war. French companies must leave the Russian market. Renault, Auchan, Leroy Merlin and others must stop being sponsors of Russia's war machine. US President Joe Biden has arrived in Brussels ahead of the NATO summit, which is taking place later today, followed by G7 and EU leaders meetings. This is the US State Department accuses Russian forces of committing war crimes in Ukraine. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said there were, quote, numerous credible reports of attacks on civilians, specifically in the besieged city of Mariupol. The Ukrainian president, uh, Mr. Zelensky, who will address leaders via video link later today, called for solidarity from NATO and EU partners, urging them to take action. We're expecting serious steps from NATO, the EU and the G7 nations. We know that Russians have already started lobbying for their interests. These are the interests of war. We know that they're working with several partners. We know that they want to stifle this issue, the struggle against war. But it's the war that we need to snuff out. Our solid position will be presented at these three summits. At these summits, we will see who's a friend, who's a partner, and who has betrayed us for money. Russia's ruble briefly rose to a three-week high versus the US dollar after President Putin said the country will seek payment for gas supply in rubles. Mr. Putin said the move will specifically target European countries that he branded, quote, unfriendly. However, it remains unclear if Russia has the power to change existing contracts that were previously agreed upon in euros. Putin said he wanted the change to be implemented immediately. 
I have decided to implement a set of measures to switch over payments as soon as possible. Let's start with our natural gas, to switch over payments for our natural gas supplied to the so-called unfriendly countries into Russian rubles. At the same time, I want to separately emphasize that Russia will continue by all means to supply natural gas in accordance with the volumes and prices, according to the pricing principles fixed in the contracts concluded earlier. Unlike some colleagues, we value our business reputation as a reliable partner and supplier. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is expected to address the media in less than an hour from now. We'll obviously bring you that statement live as we get it. Heads of state are then set to begin arriving at Alliance headquarters. That ahead of the summit itself, which is scheduled to begin at 10 Central European time. Hadley is on the ground in Brussels and joins us now. And Hadley, we've already heard Jens Stoltenberg talking about reinforcing the eastern flank. Will there be any other developments, do we think, from this meeting that would immediately and directly assist President Zelensky? Well, this is the big question, Jeff, and my uh, contacts in Ukraine essentially saying, where is the de-swifting? Where is the will in Europe at this point for oil and gas sanctions? How is it possible that we are still one month into this invasion and still talking about uh, moving forward with harsher sanctions? They want more. They want to see evidence um, that European partners, as well as the Americans, are on board to do something about the aggression of Russia and Ukraine. Now, it's interesting to note that what we heard from the Secretary General yesterday really uh, was talking about bolstering the troop presence in Eastern Europe, really taking care of NATO's eastern flank, if you will. Already we've seen since the start of this invasion some 140,000 troops rallied. 100,000 of those are American soldiers, I have to admit. And you've got to wonder at what point um, the NATO alliance really gets their act together because the Secretary General really emphasizing again and again how um, extraordinary it is that the European partners were able to rally to this point, that they were able to get as many sanctions um, as the EU has managed to achieve. And yet at the same point, we still have an invasion one month in. And even Secretary of State Antony Blinken has said that war crimes have been committed by the Russian regime. So a big question, of course, going forward is what we're going to see later today, but also about this threat what President Biden has said is a real threat, chemical and biological weapons. Now, Secretary General Stoltenberg yesterday saying that there would be equipment that would be given to Ukraine to combat that kind of threat. But you've got to wonder at what point there will be an actual red line drawn. I was in the room several years ago when then Secretary of State John Kerry uh, said that chemical weapons in Syria would be a red line for the administration. And he was forced to backtrack that statement by President Obama weeks later, essentially. You've got to wonder at what point um, war crimes and the potential for chemical and biological weapons um, would be enough to see some kind of action on the ground for Ukrainians. And that's the question they're asking. Listen in to what the Secretary General had to say yesterday. I expect allies will agree to provide additional support, including cybersecurity assistance as well as equipment to help Ukraine protect against chemical, biological, and radiological and nuclear threats. President Putin's invasion is brutal, and the human suffering is horrifying and painful to witness. We are determined to do all we can to support Ukraine. 
But we have a responsibility to ensure that the war does not escalate beyond Ukraine and become a conflict between NATO and Russia. The Secretary General there saying, you know, we're determined to do everything we can to see that this crisis doesn't escalate, that this invasion doesn't get worse, essentially. But you've got to wonder just how much room they have to maneuver. Of course, the NATO alliance, um, Ukraine is not a part of the NATO alliance. So at the end of the day, what they can do to bolster their eastern flank against any possible Russian aggression is a very different question than what can actually be done on the ground in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians totally understand that and are clamoring clamoring, guys, for more action on the part of NATO and the EU and the G7. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that, Hadley. We'll catch up with you, of course, a little bit later on. Okay, Matthew Abriza is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former U.S. ambassador to Azerbaijan. Sir, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on CNBC. Um, Your first bullet point has got my attention, and that is this will be one of the most important NATO summits in history. Just explain to our viewers why, sir. Good morning. Yes, good morning. Thank you for letting me join you. Uh, This is the first NATO summit that has taken place against the backdrop of, well, (laughs) the largest land war in Europe since World War II. And as as your excellent package just now in reporting uh, explained, Secretary General of NATO is trying to find not just a balance, but a, a, a way out of a box, which is that some NATO member states are clamoring, as your reporter said, as the Ukrainians are, for something, something more, something physical, something kinetic, something military to be done to stop this war and to make sure President Putin doesn't win in Ukraine and then carry this conflict into the NATO space. Uh, On the other hand, there's great trepidation across Europe, uh, especially in Germany, about NATO and themselves being brought into a war that could escalate if President Putin chooses to do so, to the use of nuclear or chemical weapons. These are historically unprecedented dangers. Um, You say that, sir, but you know better than I do that two Chechen wars, uh, events in South Ossetia, Azkabia, Transnistria as well, the pattern has been well played over the last two decades of Putin's rule. Why should NATO approach it differently this time? What is the escalation you're talking about? And I couldn't agree with you more. I was uh, right in the middle of the U.S. response to Russia's invasion of Georgia. And I think we as a transatlantic community failed to demonstrate how serious the costs are or should be uh, for this naked aggression uh, unprovoked against neighboring countries. So what's different this time is that uh, what's happening in Ukraine, A, has uh, now been decided to be such a humanitarian catastrophe as for the United States to, to deem Russian actions war crimes, uh, which is setting up another track of diplomacy, by the way. Uh, but B, it's the threats that President Putin himself has made to, to bring this conflict into NATO territory. When he said back in December in his written demands that he has these demands with regard to Ukraine, but also with regard to NATO, namely that NATO roll back its membership uh, to its pre-1997 framework. And that means that Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, the Baltic states, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic, they would all no longer be actively involved in NATO. Uh, And that's that's a a threat to to NATO itself, which means that's threatening actual military conflict uh, with the West. 
Matthew, can I pick up on your comment about uh, the angle around Putin being called a war criminal by uh, Biden? Because this just seemed like a very aggressive comment that we heard uh, a few days back, but you were saying it's a diplomatic track. Just give us a sense as to how that could be used as a beneficial tool for the West. Sure. Well, first of all, I mean, it's I, I think the Biden administration is calling it like it sees it. We've all watched these war crimes happening. I mean, it seems pretty indisputable that when uh, uh, a theater with the, the words children written in Russian on both sides is bombed or when maternity hospitals are bombed, I mean, that, that's targeting civilians and medical facilities, which are war crimes. So leave that aside. What's what's the, the diplomatic path? I think the Biden administration is remembering the Bosnia case and then Kosovo, where uh, the United States and its European allies resisted any involvement. Uh, in fact, in the case of Bosnia for years, the then Clinton administration um, would not allow uh, arming of, of the uh, opposition, so the Bosniak opposition to the Serbs who were, who were attacking them. And, and the European allies were completely on board with that policy. But over time, the sheer weight of the humanitarian catastrophe in both places, in Bosnia and then in Kosovo, uh, led to interventions. And in the case of Kosovo, it led to NATO and the United States bombing uh, Belgrade, bombing the Ministry of Defense in Belgrade. So um, Russia knows this, by the way. I mean, Russia, in the case of Ukraine right now, is claiming, had been claiming that the, the, the linguistic rights and human rights of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine were being violated, which then is a humanitarian crisis that justifies military intervention. So, so the Biden administration now has, has begun to, to turn those gears that could eventually justify some sort of more kinetic or military intervention uh, by the United States and its allies on the ground in Ukraine. They're not there yet, though. They're nowhere near go taking that step. And I think it would, it would require uh, something really horrendous, like the use of chemical weapons or nuclear weapons by Russia, uh, for, for there to be military intervention by the West in, in Ukraine. Matthew, you are the former U.S. ambassador to Azerbaijan, and for that country in particular, it's been quite a difficult war. They were called uh, to have a meeting with Russia, just as we saw some of the areas uh, on the eastern flank of Ukraine being called separatist uh, areas by Putin. But of course, China's been trying to build relations with Azerbaijan, with the Belt and Road Project, and we know Azerbaijan's been trying to sell more gas to Europe. Just how difficult a situation is this when there's so many interconnected players, but seemingly on different sides of the fight at this point? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I live in Turkey, by the way, and there's sort of a similar situation here where Turkey's a NATO member state, uh, yet it may mediate between Ukraine and Russia. So, and in China, the, the a debate is raging within Chinese society, not just, you know, among experts, but about should China condemn what Russia's doing? Because China's policy, like Azerbaijan's policy, is to support the, the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of, of countries. Uh, and, so, and that's because there was a separatist conflict in Azerbaijan, the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, and there's, of course, the Taiwan issue for China. So by remaining neutral, um, many people argue inside those countries themselves that their governments uh, are not uh, choosing the right side of history and are helping President Putin carry out this unprovoked war. On the other hand, Russia is a powerful country. Uh, and countries like China that oppose the United States and NATO uh, on the global stage, um, they don't want to see the U.S. and its allies succeed. So 
Many countries around the world now are wrapped up in this conflict, whether they like it or not. And, and then we see it in Germany as well, where you know the, the Biden administration has called for European allies to cut off their purchases of oil and gas from Russia because that will strangle the Russian economy and deprive Putin from the money needed to, to continue the war. But the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, just came out yesterday and said, there's no way we're going to cut off those purchases of Russian energy supplies because that'll drive our economy and all of Europe's economy into recession. So many countries are here caught in the crossfire, uh, literally and figuratively. So, Matthew, let me pick up with that, because what is the read across then and drawing us back to the NATO meeting? What is the read across when it comes to the difference of approach over the embargo and Russian on Russian oil and gas? How does that read across? when it comes to the defence alliance, because we've also seen cracks there. The Poles have been very ready to hand over their MiG-29s, but apparently the American administration isn't prepared for that to happen at this stage. So where do you think the splits are and how do you think they get papered over at this meeting? Yeah, what a great transition. So how they get papered over is going to be through some, uh, I think, uh, white knuckle negotiations uh, at the table, but what are the differences? So Poland is the perfect uh, uh, country to bring up. So um, if you look back into the history of World War II, uh, Poland remembers that uh, the United Kingdom, France, other allies had promised, had promised to come to Poland's military aid if Poland were attacked uh, by, by Nazi Germany. And indeed, in September of 1939, Poland was attacked not only by Nazi Germany, but by Soviet Russia simultaneously. Uh, and there was no military help. So the Poles call this the phony war, phony war. And so <laughs> Poland's leadership has this precedent in mind and therefore has proposed at this NATO summit uh, that there be a peacekeeping force uh, that would be you know, consisting of troops from NATO member states. Uh, Poland has not been clear on whether or not it would push for uh, there to be a NATO umbrella. But it is pushing for NATO to be prepared to send peacekeeping troops into Ukraine to begin with, uh, to protect the humanitarian uh, corridors that are allowing Ukrainians, supposedly allowing them to evacuate cities like Mariupol and to allow uh, humanitarian aid to come in. Um, I think a lot of NATO member states are terrified by that idea because they know that <laughs> that's going to mean clashes of NATO troops with Russian troops and then de facto NATO's at war with Russia. So um, so it's the eastern NATO member states, the ones that actually have the experience of being invaded and occupied by Russia in World War II that are most concerned, are most pushing for a robust kinetic response. Uh, I ran a think tank in Estonia for a few years, and you know the Estonians remember that into the late 1950s, Russian or Soviet authorities were still deporting thousands of Estonians to Siberia more than 10 years after World War II. So for these countries that, that lived the, the, the reality of Soviet occupation and are now members of NATO, they don't want to repeat that history. But for countries that are removed from, from the interface with Russia and whose economies are so intertwined with Russia's, especially on energy, they kind of just want the whole thing to go away. And they're hoping, let's persuade Putin to stop the war so we can get back to business as usual with Russia. Matthew, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks so much for your analysis for us this morning. Uh, Matthew Breezer, the senior fellow for the Atlantic Council and former U.S. ambassador to Azerbaijan. Uh, and while we're on the subject of Russia, 15 years of economic growth wiped out. That's the analysis from the Institute for International Finance on the outlook for Russian's, Russia's economy. We'll tell you more about that and why it's happening when we come back. 
And just a reminder, you can listen to our Squawkbox podcast to stay up to date with the latest from Ukraine, as well as the results of economic and market fallout. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Right, let's take a look at the U.S. markets yesterday. Uh, having had a very positive session the previous day, the Nasdaq and the other indices just fell in tandem, you'll note, all down between 1.2 and 1.3%, give or take the second decimal. Uh, what I really want to focus on is the treasuries and the energy markets. So let's have a look at the treasuries as well, and because the curve, there's some stunningly interesting things going on. So all the rhetoric from the um, the, the governors of the, uh, the the Federal Reserve at the moment is talking about well, maybe we need to be hawkish sooner rather than later. Let's get some form of grip on the inflationary impulses in the US economy by having maybe 50 basis points, some even talking about 75 basis points of hikes. Let's get them over and done with sooner rather than later. Uh, but others are then saying, well, does the recession come later on thereafter? And as such, this is why we're seeing the flattening and in some parts inversion of the curve. And I think the action on the two to 10 year really typifies what we're seeing at the moment. So the two to 10 year spread, okay, between the two year short term paper and the 10 year medium to long term paper at its height one year ago was 148 basis points, okay, 148 basis points. Now you've seen the two year yield picking up aggressively as the underlying bond has been sold. Sorry if I'm talking down to some of you as well, but I've got to get make sure everyone understands this as well. And now the spread that was 148 basis points between the two and the 10 year at its low in the last 24 hours, was down to 19 basis points. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, let's do your maths, everybody. Should we do this? We're, I know it's a bit early for you. 213 from 234, 235, that's roughly 21 and a half. Yeah, there or thereabouts. We won't worry about the decimals. So now it's just basically hanging around that 20 basis point spread as well. What does that tell you? Well, let's get out our old lips in our old economics books as well and all those genius economists out there who got it so wrong the last two years on inflation. But now they're still telling us that the predictive power of the inverted curve is still very much intact. So that means that you get the strong economic activity or certainly the strong inflationary impulse earlier on. And that is reflected in the shorter end of the curve. Later on, on the 10 to 30 year, actually then people start to worry about the recession coming in 23, 24 and thereafter. Uh, and that is why you have the flattening of the curve. I think that pretty much sums it up. There are other greater experts out there, including my esteemed colleague sitting at the desk who will be able to explain more about it, but we'll come to that later on. So that's the one big factor. Then we'll have a look at the Asian markets very quickly as well. Uh, they are mildly, well, you know, it's a, it's a flat session. There you go. I, I don't call any of those moves considering what we've seen as of late uh, particularly dramatic at all, certainly not on the Hang Seng, which has had the most extraordinary uh, five to 10 day rally. Opening calls, again, I'll just show you briefly where they are trading. Again, mildly positive at the start of trading. But this is where I think the other action really is interesting. And this is on the commodities as well. So I think the treasuries is where it's at. I think the commodities are where it's at as well. And what I find absolutely fascinating about the oil price at the moment, thank you, uh, is the fact 
that we managed to see a very, very big rally. Oh, you got to remember, a couple of sessions ago, we were talking about Brent, yeah, at its lows last week, around about $100. We've rallied 20-odd percent on concerns about Russian supply, on concerns about Caspian pipes, on concerns of all kinds of things going on out there about the availability of supply compared with d demand, which isn't diminishing yet as quickly as many people thought it would do at 122 bucks as well. So what I was going to make the point is that some days, and this is why it's getting deliciously random, some days the oil price goes up and equity market goes down because it's concerned uh, about obviously that, that, that cost for businesses and the cost for the global economy. And other days they're moving up in tandem. That's how amazingly volatile this momentum trade appears to be at the moment. I'll show you natural gas as well before I get to Karen, because Karen's got some very interesting commentary to get to as well. Nat gas, three month move up 38.6%. But I mentioned to you uh, about the bullishness of some members of the Federal Reserve. Well, Karen has some more information for you. Karen. Uh, Steve, it's a little bit like the saying from Top Gun, I feel the need for speed. That's what Bullard's been saying. And don't forget, uh, James Bullard has been the member calling for 3% on the interest rate by the end of the year. And he's calling for front-loading now. So speaking at the Credit Suisse Asian Investment Conference, they said Lewis Fed President James Bullard said, the US central bank has a lot of room for rate hikes to tackle inflation. It's not that really the degree of raising rates is that you have to you have to move in response to the data and we're already we were at zero because of the pandemic so it makes sense that we have to move quite a bit to get to neutral here to make sure we're not continuing to put upward pressure on inflation right let's move on from that one for a moment because it was an, a very interesting piece of research came into my inbox late last night i want to share it with you everybody the Russian stock market is set to reopen today for the first time in a month. That wasn't the research, but I'll tell you in a second. Uh, after tumbling 33% on the first day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, before the halt in trading, the benchmark index Moex pared back some of the losses. But that was before Western countries launched a flurry of economic sanctions. Many London-listed Russian stocks have lost as much as 90 9-0% of their value. The Russian Central Bank will allow trading on 33 of the 50 shares included in the MOEX, including Gazprom and Lukoil. Trading will kick off at 7.50 CET. Short selling will be banned and foreigners won't be able to sell their holdings yet. I'll just give you one comment on that before we move on. When you see Chinese support operations for their stock market, when everyone expects it to go down, it's because the state has decided stocks aren't going down. I wonder, and I don't know, I wonder if the Russian authorities have got something via the central bank or via any other mechanism up their sleeve to stabilise stocks and show how strong and perhaps virile they are uh, in the face of Western sanctions. I'm just going to leave. Do you want to comment on that one? Well, I mean, you can print rubles till you're blue in the face, which is what they can do. Which is good course. because you can pay for your energy in rubles as well now, I'm told. Right. And so you could use that as some kind of support mechanism for key Russian stocks. But I don't think all of the market will be supported. And that's no. the interesting question, whether we see patronage define who gets support. Yeah, and whether Miss Nabalina would like the extra printing of those rubles when she's got her own inflationary headaches over at the CB. Mm. Right, this is the research I want to show you. The Institute of International Finance, IIF, is forecasting a 15% contraction, 1-5% contraction in the Russian economy this year as the country is hit by economic sanctions. Hundreds of foreign companies have also voluntarily frozen or cut back on their Russian operations, including uh, Renault and, uh, and partially Nestle in the last 24 hours in a show of support for Ukraine. Now, according to the IIF, the medium and long-term impact could be even more severe. 
as Russia faces, and I think this is fascinating, it's something we've touched on over the years, faces a brain drain of professionals and a plunge in foreign investment. Now, Jeff and Karen, you know uh, I, I've been banging on about this research as well, but I will just give you a little bit about the brain drain thing. I find this absolutely fascinating. It's something we've been talking about for a very long time as well. I'll just put out a, a, a short paragraph and then I'll let you two come in if you don't mind. So there is anecdotal evidence of flights to Turkey being booked up well into 2023. And a third daily train from St. Petersburg to Helsinki uh, was just to accommodate the high demand. So extra flights out of the country, to be fair, they come back again, and extra trains coming out of the country. And those same trains go back as well. The resulting brain drain is not a new phenomenon. And that's the hasten to add that point as well. But it's a demographic issue that's been going on for a very long time. Now, how about this? This is Russian estimates. This isn't some Western spurious comment. According to official estimates, almost half a million people left Russia in 2020, close to double the numbers uh, occurring during the economically challenging time of the 1990s. We know this has been going on. We know that Russia has an awful demographic problem as well with early deaths and indeed uh, young people leaving to seek pastures new elsewhere as well. The demographic problem is a clear and present danger to Russia. And dare I say it is something that Mr. Putin is not unaware of and potentially down the long list of catalysts for why he's interested in Ukraine. I would suggest the fact that it's got 40 odd million people might be one of those. Karen, do you want to jump in? I'll just jump in from the, the brain drain aspect and what it means for technology, because if you think about it, the next wave of industrialization is really around technology strength, the IT expertise. And if we think about now that the US is effectively cut off from a lot of technology and that may get worse, uh, what does that mean for the future? And who does Russia rely on for that technology expertise? I think there's one very obvious candidate here, and that would be China. So again, it does tell you about the importance of China in the relationship if it's going to be relying on external IT, external technology expertise. So that is something worth bearing in mind. And given the lines we're hearing today about the narrative that's been pushed in Chinese media about uh, this uh, Ukraine war being the result or uh, down to the actions of the West, I think that's quite uh, instrumental that uh, China may be trying to still play the long game by keeping open the access to selling technology to Russia down the track. I think the other point here around just how far Russia has been set back Economically, I mean, we're talking about a contraction of 15% in 2022 and long-term impacts here. I just wonder whether that plays out on domestic news. We know the censorship that's been taking place and how Russia's been trying to spin the narrative around this invasion. But I think ordinary people can see the, the high costs they're paying given the, the collapse of the ruble when there's a lot of imports, what consumption's 50% of the Russian economy. Surely many people, even if they're not seeing it on the headlines in the news, are going to feel it anyway, day in, day out, as they go to the supermarket and they go about their daily business uh, spending money in rubles. Let me just make a couple of quick points um, to, just to reinforce the point you were making, Steve. Look, if you look at the technology companies that are leaders in Russia, like Yandex, like Wildberries, like Avito, they were all formed well before 2014 and the uh, invasion in the Donbass and Crimea. There haven't been so many since. And I think 2014 was a watermark in terms of brain drain, particularly around technology. But I want to make a slightly different point because I think it's all well and good for us to talk about the impact that the sanctions are going to have on the Russian economy. But unfortunately, the Russian people have learned to be incredibly resourceful. So they will work with the pain 
And the Kremlin ultimately still understands that when you have an economy where 60% of the GDP is natural resources, so oil and gas and all the other things they dig out of the ground, that gives you some permanent strength. Because there will always be someone around the world who is willing to breach any sanctions imposed from Washington, and they will buy the goods. And whether it's India this time round or another country that is going to pick up the additional oil and gas, we will have to wait and see. And of course, you've still got the uh, very painful situation that you've got Germany, which is on the other side of the ledger, which we've been discussing all morning. They paid the Russians 40 billion euros last year for oil and gas alone. And inevitably, it'll look the same again this year if there is no embargo put in place. So, yes, we're going to see a lot of damage done to the Russian economy. Will it change President Putin's mind? I doubt it. One thing I will say, um, we've talked a lot about renewables and how the high price of oil and the geopolitical insecurity creates uh, autarky mm. for uh, different forms of technology. Well, I'll just say mm. something to you. Go on. Skolkovo. Remember mm. that old one? Yeah. You and I at Spieth, in two decades ago, 2009 it was announced, actually. Mm. So let's go back to th that period between 2009 and 2012 when you and I were at SPIF, the mm. St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, and President Medvedev, who temporarily held the job for Mr. Putin in the meantime when he, yeah. Putin went to Prime Minister, uh, said, we're going to diversify the economy. Kudrin queued up to talk to you and me about how they're going to diversify the economy. Nabilina queued up to talk to you and I about how they're going to diversify the economy. And you just said to me, 60% of those revenues coming from hydrocarbons. That was a big fail, that diversification. Wasn't oh, it, it never really happened, did it? No. And, and let's face it, I think we pressed them at the time and we pressed them in every interview subsequently. And the reality is that they never took the big I mean, step exists, necessary to diversify. But it's diversify. never ever, as you say, gone to that, that exponential level. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.